Uh, I am Evan Smith, the Editor-in-Chief and CEO of The Tribune. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the final panel of the day in the Law and Order track. Uh, we are fortunate to be joined by someone uh, about whom I think it can fairly be said is a legend in the world of Law and Order. He may not want to say that, but I'm certainly happy to. Uh, Rusty Harden. He's one of the famous lawyer, most famous lawyers in Texas and not just here. He's founder and owner and, I guess, principal of Rusty Harden and Associates, a 16-year-old Houston-based firm whose diverse client list has included ExxonMobil, Rice University, the Houston Texans, Dow Jones, Rudy Tomjanovich, Warren Moon, and Roger Clemens, who I promise you I want to ask you about. <laughs> I threatened to do one minute on Michael Morton and 59 minutes on Roger Clemens. I'll probably actually do the balance a little different. Uh, most recently, he was appointed to serve as special prosecutor in a court of inquiry investigating the wrongful conviction of Michael Morton. Some of you may have seen Mr. Morton on this very stage this morning. Specifically, Mr. Harden will consider whether the prosecutor in the Morton case, Ken Anderson, should face criminal charges. Mr. Harden knows a thing or two about prosecutors, having been one himself for, for more than 15 years. As an assistant district attorney in Houston, he never lost a felony jury trial and successfully tried 14 death penalty cases. In 1989, he was named Texas Prosecutor of the Year. Two years later, he entered private practice. In 1994, he was named Chief Trial Counsel for the Whitewater Independent Counsel's Office, serving under both Robert Fisk and Kenneth Starr. A native of North Carolina, Mr. Hardin earned an undergraduate degree from Wesleyan University, small liberal arts school, which I like, and a law degree from SMU. In between, he taught high school history and spent five years in the U.S. Army, rising to the rank of captain after 15 months in Vietnam. It is an honor to have him here with us today. Please join me in welcoming Rusty Harden. Thank you. So, uh, with, specifically with regard to the Morton case and this role that you played, how does one get made a special prosecutor? It's not a job that you apply for, and I assume, at least out in the open, it's not a job you campaign for. It's a job you get. That's correct. How'd you get it? Uh, the judge, Louis Stearns from Fort Worth, that was yep. appointed to, to hear the court of inquiry, called me and uh, asked me if I would do it. And the interesting thing was, is I, uh, back when I left the district attorney's office in 19, it's hard to imagine now uh, at this stage, but in 1990, uh, 89, prosecutors thought the Court of Criminal Appeals was too liberal. Uh, just goes to show you what's happening. How the pendulum swings. The right. pendulum swings big time in this whole yeah. system. Um, and uh, I had about a four-month-old pack, which I was going to try to get uh, Judge Louis Stearns and, and Judge David Berkelman of San Antonio uh, elected after they'd been appointed by uh, Governor Clements. And to show you how things have changed, Republicans still were not winning uh, statewide races at that time, and they lost. And so the last time I had seen or talked to Judge Stearns was uh, 1990. This was your thank you letter. <laughs> well, he's a, he's a very good man. He's a very good judge. Right. He's a very impartial guy. And actually, the only correction I would make is, is, is that I don't decide that. This is a little bit different. The, uh, the attorney pro tem, or whatever one calls it, special prosecutor, is supposed to be the legal advisor to the judge, gathering the evidence. So you're going to advise the judge on what, on what might ought to happen based on the facts. And presenting the facts to him for him to decide. Right. So he'll, he'll have a hearing and listen to the evidence we put on and to the evidence that uh, Judge Anderson's lawyers put on. Yeah. No jury involved, and he'll make a decision. For the benefit of the people in the audience, I suspect everybody knows what the facts of the Morton case are, at least in broad outline. But would you 
talk a little bit about what you are charged specifically with looking at what the what the issues at play are? Yeah, I want to walk gently on it because I don't want to say anything that would indicate to anybody on either side. Be prejudicial, I understand. That, that, that I have an opinion as yet. Um, I, I will tell you that everybody, of course, is horrified by the fact of a man spending 25 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Everybody knows now he didn't commit it. And the question is uh, whether or not um, the prosecutors uh, failed to give evidence to the defense uh, that would have been material and helpful to them in defending him. Right. And, and then if they did, uh, whether or not that was intentional and whether it therefore constitutes some type of crime or, or justifies some other type of remedy. So an issue would be in the case of the evidence that was not turned over but might have been material to the finding in the case. Yes. There was a gentleman, I believe, in a van who was spotted, uh, I guess the, the term from TV dramas would be casing the joint um, at some point prior to this, and that was known to the prosecutor. Am I correct about that? But it was not revealed to the other side? Well, that's the kind of thing I really don't want to... Do you want to characterize that? that? I will say, I will give y'all a, a, a kudo in the sense that I think uh, Texas Tribune, through your reporter here... Yeah. Uh, probably has covered it the most thoroughly and, uh, and most balanced of any of the media stuff. You don't want to, but Mr. Harden, you don't even want to talk about which pieces of evidence would fall into the bucket of no. this was not turned over and therefore it might be problematic. No. But I, so just generally speaking, it's, you want to see whether evidence that was not made available to the other side might have had a, a material impact on the outcome of the case. Yes, and if it's done intentionally. You know, it, it's, it represents... And it a, has to be done intentionally. It brought, represents a broader issue for the whole criminal justice system. And that is... I have long felt that the criminal justice system has moved too far right and attempting to make crimes of things that are just bad events or unfortunate events where stuff happens. In the case, in this case, uh, I'm not suggesting that that's, it, that's the case at all, but I, I want a criminal justice system that looks as to whether or not the defendant, take, forget this case a minute, really intentionally engaged in wrongful conduct. Because there are a lot of mistakes people make that shouldn't be a crime. And I'm not speaking of this case at all. Can you give me an example of a kind of uh, mistake that someone would make that is now considered a crime that shouldn't be? Well, there, there, are, a lot of, there are a lot of... Arthur Anderson. Arthur Anderson Arthur Anderson's a classic. Ten years ago, Arthur Anderson run out of business because of the hysteria that worked its way around Enron. And... At the trial, the jury rejected the government's whole theory of a company that now the, the government had run out of business. And I will tell you that a lot of it, I see more of it a lot of times in the federal system than I do in the state system. Because the federal system has a larger panoply of crimes that are harder to show intent and um, that more likely, a lot of times, will be simply people made bad judgments. But the question is, is, it, is that bad judgment something that should be a crime? But there's a provision in the law, Mr. Hardin, for people to be punished for crimes that they commit, but that they didn't intend to commit, or that, you know, where there was no malice. The things that they do still can be considered wrong and can still be punished. Some, some, DWI. Right. Uh, but DWI, result, you know, DWI, very rarely does anybody accidentally been drinking. Right. Um, but the, the accident they caused and the harm they cause, not necessarily intentional. But most of our crimes mm -hmm. do require some kind of bad mental state, and I think that's the way it should be. Now, there have been a number of exonerations famously over the last decade, say, you know, uh, the DA in Dallas County who was with us today on another panel has been one of the uh, 
uh, prosecutors around the state who has been most aggressive and most willing to reopen cases that had previously been been decided to see if there was some uh, claim of innocence that was disregarded or was not taken seriously enough, maybe is a better way to say it, and some people have been exonerated as a consequence of his efforts, but not just there. I'm not aware of a whole bunch of special prosecutors being appointed in cases of exonerations. Why in the Morton case is there a special prosecutor when there might not have been in other cases? Well, because those on behalf of Michael Morton um, pushed hard for a court of inquiry, which is a very rare animal in Texas. doesn't usually happen. It's had a checkered history in terms of the way it's been considered within the system because, theoretically, uh, what's happening with a court of inquiry is what usually happens with an examining trial uh, with all of the other, all the other things that attach to it. Uh, it's an extra, extra procedure inserted in between yep. the beginning and a grand jury or so. And, but I think, look, I mean, it's a horrible set of facts. I mean, it, it, if a man spends 25 years in prison for something he didn't do, if he spends one week, one month, mm-hmm. which will get me off on a tear about how we've made pretrial detention now be a punishment rather than in showing well, somebody... Book, bookmark that. We'll come yeah, back to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, I, and I, I think it's, it's unusual. Courts of inquiry are not usual process. In fact, the last one that I'm aware of, and I may be wrong about this, Mr. Harden or Brandy, was the Willingham case, where Judge Baird, here in Austin, was presiding over a court of inquiry in the Willingham case, which I believe never actually saw itself through to conclusion. Right? There was another one. Very that, controversial in any case, in that case, where it does not seem to be quite so controversial in this case. Right, and because I think there is a tremendous desire to know whether somebody within the system did what people are alleging they did. Yeah. Uh, look, if, if prosecutors uh, hide evidence, uh, it, it has horrible consequences, not just to the individual, but to the whole system. The Senator Stevens thing has given some impetus to it uh, on the national letter. If you remember... This is the U.S. Senator from Alaska, Alaska. The, the late Ted Stevens. Right. And, and it was clear that the Department of Justice withheld evidence um, that was incredibly material in such a degree that ultimately... Uh, a new trial was granted and dismissed. I think, uh, uh, and so that's in my, in the Roger Clemens case. Now, this is an interesting thing that, that happens. I want to tell you all how to build a Swiss village when you're only asking what time it is. But when we talk about Brady, we're always talking about, as most of you know, the U.S. Supreme Court case that says the prosecution has an ethical and legal duty to turn over anything that tends to be or could be exculpatory for the defendant. Uh, and Ted Stevens, they didn't, and he was convicted. And, and the Department of Justice now is very, very careful about that because people lost jobs, careers as a result of it. But in the Roger Clemens case, what they did was we found that there was a new thing which still skirts what I think prosecutors' real obligation is. Um, and that is they turned over everything to us, no question. I've never gotten as much uh, stuff and discovery as they did. But what they chose to do was not to pursue evidence that might tend to show he was innocent that we recommended they go to and that they look at. So, and the reason they didn't is because if they, pres- if they went and did it and possessed it, they'd have to turn it over. And then if they had to turn it over, because then they have Brady in their hands. And, that, and other prosecutors are starting to do that. And there are certain... Let me be sure, Mr. Arden, excuse me. Let me be sure I understand this. So, so prosecutors are starting to identify, essentially, trails that they don't want to go down for fear that having gone down them, they would be obligated legally to disclose having gone down them to you. Right. 
Yeah. And in fact, what they do, what some are doing, and I, I, I don't have a feel for how prevalent it is, yeah. uh, but it wasn't unique to us. What, what they're simply doing is putting their hand, head in the sand, and they're dealing with what their investigators have brought, and then they are carefully not necessarily, and turning that over to the defense if it's exculpatory, but not going down the track that might lead them to more exculpatory evidence. And right. it, it bit them in this trial big time. But in the Morton case, just so we're clear, what's at issue here is not trails they failed to That's go right. down. It's evidence they had in hand that they chose not to turn over. That's the allegation. Right. Um, what's the time frame on a, on a special prosecutor's work in a we're, case like this? We're scheduled to present evidence in December. And, and the potential consequences to Judge Anderson, he was the DA at the time in Williamson County, he's now a judge. The potential consequences to him range from essentially nothing happening to what? What's the outer pole on this side? Well, I mean, there, there are several uh, lawyers from Michael Morton have talked in, over the period of years of, of several offenses. Um, and there'll be all kinds of issues as to whether... There's a statute of limitations issue about it because obviously you're talking about something 25 years. And so, but th th there are a range of offenses that have been alleged that he committed that yep. I'd like to leave at that. Could he do jail time? Well, I mean, if, if, if he were, the, this judge can issue a warrant. He won't be convicted of anything. What will happen is, is this judge will be deciding whether there's probable cause to issue a warrant for his arrest. Yeah. And then it would depend on what the offenses were. And from Mr. Morton's perspective, obviously you don't want to speak for Mr. Morton, but from Mr. Morton's perspective, he's not going to get those 25 years back if this happens. Yeah. He's not going to receive anything additionally uh, beyond what he's already received. Uh, uh, it would be essentially peace of mind in, in the knowledge that the wrong that was done has been righted, or well, the wrongdoer has I, been I've not met Michael Morton. No, you've not met Michael Morton? I have not. No, we will. We will. But uh, Should have arranged that today. <laughs> well, it would have been fine. He, I'm understanding that he's had conversations with the prosecutors around the state about this issue, uh, and uh, might surprise some people that takes the position that's been relayed to me. Now, I wasn't part of the conversation, yep. so I don't know whether it's accurate. My understanding is... Michael Morton uh, is not persuaded that there is a widespread prosecutorial problem with what hurt him, what he contends hurt him. Uh, he might think it might be isolated to this instance. I don't know that he'd say isolated, yeah. but I don't think he thinks it is. Uh, my understanding is he's told prosecutors who, who've reached out to him because their state association is concerned about this. Uh, it's not just people that are, are, are favorably predisposed toward him that know him they're upset. Uh, the average prosecutor is upset yeah. about what happened. And so my understanding is, and he'd have to speak for himself, that, that, that his motivation is more to try to keep this from happening again to others and uh, to find out exactly what happened in his case and how that can or cannot be prevented in the future. In the future. But I don't get any sense that uh, he's seeking vengeance. Right. Amazing when you think about someone who spends 25 years in jail to, be ha to have that level of equanimity when it comes to the question of seeking vengeance. He's really kind of at peace. Maybe he worked all that out inside, you know, but he's not... Um, well... Yeah. Now, you see, you're in an interesting position, I think, to be discussing all these issues with yourself and with me and with others because you've been a prosecutor yourself. You've been on the other side. Yeah. Does that shape your point of view about this in any way? Well, only that... I used to... I used to uh, be in charge of training in addition to trying cases in the Harris County DA's office yep. for about 10 years of my 15-year career. And I used to tell people, look, 
you have the ability to do great good, but you also have the ability and potential to do great harm. And you have got to always remember both of those parts of the capabilities of your job and not yeah. just the do great good. Um, it's been interesting to watch the pendulum. And so I become a lawyer in 1975. Um, as you mentioned, uh, I, I came to it late. I was 31 when I went to law school. I was almost 34 when I became a prosecutor. Um, and I was always impressed by the fact that under the two DAs I worked for, I was never asked to prosecute somebody because of who they were, nor was I ever asked to pro not prosecute somebody because of who they were. And so it was a very, very strong thing. And, and I grew up in an office where if you didn't want to go forward because you had ethical questions about it, no supervisor ever, ever tried to overrule you on that. Um, and that's over a 15-year period. So I grew up in a system that took seriously what all of you know a prosecutor's responsibility is, but some people get cynical about it. Part of our problem has been that, you know, I taught, the year I taught school, I taught American history. I've loved history. My oldest son is a, just got off the picket line in Chicago, teaches American history in Chicago. Um, so I, I've always been a fan of American history. And one of the things that I always believe that we watch is we always overreact to particular incidents or so. And anecdotes sometimes drive our legislature. I was up here a lot in 85, 87, 89. Um, much less cynical, quite frankly, about the legislative process than a lot of people. Um, but there's always this tension if when something goes wrong is not only to find people to blame for it, but to pass a new law or to overreact. And we, we've become too conservative a criminal justice system in this state. And I say that as somebody that left and supported judges I thought were more conservative than the ones that were on the bench. But we've had this in our judicial system for the last 25 years or so. We've went from a, a very plaintiff-friendly civil court system uh, on the appellate level um, and a very, uh, I thought, more favorable than it should be on the defendant side and disregarding victims' rights to the swing over to where almost any conviction is good and almost any acquittal is bad and a system that became so concerned about crime because we had that big jump in the 80s yep. that everything became instinctive. In Harris County, almost every judge came straight out of the district attorney's office, meaning that most of them have never represented somebody who was in trouble. Um, and that's a lack of, potentially, a lack of balance. Um, when I started out as a prosecutor, yep. judges became judges and toward the end of their career. So the average judge, when I became a young prosecutor, was in his mid-50s or even 60s. And that brings a balance. Now, obviously, I've got a bias in touting that, uh, given my age now. But I, I really came to this opinion, I promise you, before I joined that club. And that is, is that, that we need a system that balances compassion uh, with enforcement of the law. And, and, and we don't have that as much as we used to. And, and I think that's unfortunate. I wonder if, uh, if I could ask you to comment on this broad question of whether prosecutorial misconduct is a real thing or whether it's been overblown. You know, the, the, I don't know if it's the state association you referred to, but the Texas 
It's the T Texas District, District, and Criminal, District and County Attorney Association. Uh, put a report out a couple weeks ago. Uh, uh, Lee Hahn, who was the prosecutor in Polk County, DA in Polk County, was here today. He is the president of that association right now. They put out a report saying basically prosecutorial misconduct doesn't really exist. I don't want to mischaracterize it, but they said basically mostly it's been overstated, that, that it's a big rampant problem. I'm not qualified. I'd say that it, it does exist. But uh, I think their position is, and their study, what they're doing is refuting a study of the Innocence Project. Indeed. And they're dealing with those particular cases right. that the Innocence Project... Right, but I think they're extrapolating from that... They are. ...that the problem has been made too much of. Well, I don't think you can make too much of the problem as long as you don't overreact in what you do about it. Okay. Um, I... Look, it, I, I, I think it has been overdone in the sense that I don't think it is widespread. You don't think it's rampant? I don't think it's rampant. I don't. I do not. And, you know, one of the things I love is going into smaller counties um, because smaller counties tend to be much more open uh, with the opposing side than, uh, than the big cities. Um, in fact, I suspect if we look at wrongful convictions, we will find that they, I don't know this, I know empirical knowledge, but my guess would be that wrongful convictions happen more often in the big cities than in the small towns mm. because the small towns tend to be more open and formal with each other. Hey, Evan, I got a case. What, here's what I got. All right, this is, this is all I got. You tell me what you think. I tell you what we think. I make a recommendation. Uh, you know what that? We have a trial. Okay. Nothing personal about it. They're probably right. going to have coffee at 1030 in the morning down at the local place and everything. Uh, and I think the, the, the impersonality or impersonal aspect of the large cities yep. in the criminal justice system is more likely to lend to these excesses than regular. Uh, you, you may ask some version of this or said some version of this earlier, but the idea that even one is too many, you know, you can say, well, Michael Morton spent all this time in jail, you know, it's terrible. Uh, do we have a rampant problem with people who are innocent being in jail? Well, maybe not a rampant problem, but even one person who spends 25 years is too many. Do, do you look at some prosecutorial misconduct as within the acceptable margin of error? No. As the system is so large, it's not something, if you don't think it's rampant, is there a certain amount that you go, well, you've got to just chalk that up to... No. No, no I, don't, I don't think you can ever look at it that way. I think you, you have to look at it um, on every individual basis to try to do something about it. I am uh, generally opposed and skeptical about legislative uh, solutions Remedies, yeah. Every time we have something, you know, back in eight, 1989, when I was still a prosecutor, I was chairman of the, of the uh, legislative committee for the state prosecutors association. You mentioned, I got my counterpart with the counterpart with the uh, criminal defense bar, and we went to the House Juris Criminal Justice uh, Criminal Jurisprudence Committee and the Senate uh, Criminal Justice Committee, and not even tongue in cheek said, "Look, if, if you folks will promise not to pass any." criminal law legislation this session. Both of us will go home and we'll never appear in front of the committees. We'll never be calling you. Right. We won't be lobbying you. Nothing good happens when y'all get involved. Do you still and feel that? I do. Really? I do. I, don't, I just don't think that, there are, that laws are the solution to periodic misconduct by individuals mm -hmm. unless if you're going to pass them, it won't have any other impact on it. And I, you know, for instance, if you talk about a commission, I was here for the last three quarters of the last session. Um, that'll introduce a whole new panoply of problems. 
uh, who's on there, what, what biases they bring. Right. They're not answerable to anybody. They're not elected. If you have a bad DA, you can get him out. Uh, what do you do about the appointment of, and who are those people? And are they legislators that have a particular axe to crime? You know, we have term limits through the election process. They're called elections. They are. That's right. They are. And uh, I, I don't like term limits. Well, but let me ask you about it. So let me push you a little bit on this question of, well, we don't think the legislature should do anything. The fact is DNA testing is quite controversial. It's something that was not as readily available before it was codified into law. Sure. And for a lot of the people who've been exonerated and have been found to have been, in fact, innocent, as they claimed, it was the very DNA testing made possible by the legislature doing something. What? Well, I mean, isn't, isn't the legislature's role in promoting or allowing for this, this sort of stuff to happen valuable? Well, in, in it has. Yeah. But, but keep in mind, DNA was developed in, within the system, nothing to do with the legislature. I right. tried the first DNA case in Texas in yeah. the criminal justice system yeah. back in 1987. Right as a prosecutor, um, and then it caught on. Uh, and the legislature providing funding. Right. That's what I'm referring to, yes. That's totally But that right. is them taking action that enabled, in fact, people who were innocent to, be, to, to demonstrate. Yeah, and there's another thing that can be done. Yeah. Is, is When I was a prosecutor, we were too hanky about finality of convictions in the sense that the opposition of prosecutors always was to reopening an old cases. There's got to be some finality. Victims and society have to know it's over. And that's a legitimate point. But when things started surfacing with DNA, I think some prosecutors were too resistant to reopening cases. And, and that is something that, that all this publicity and all has, has had a very salutary effect. Well, in fact, in the Morton case, there was there concerns about not only Mr. Anderson, but Mr. Bradley, who succeeded Mr. Anderson, uh, being resistant to giving Mr. Morton the opportunity to prove his innocence in the yeah, last... and that's and that's like that's yeah. like one of the sort of microcosm of the way prosecutors historically have reacted um, to to innocent proposals. You have to remember, though, uh, what's happening on their side of the table as to why they feel that way. I don't I, I don't think they should be resistant like they are. But part of the explanation is the writs of habeas corpus from prisoners. Remember, these folks don't have anything but time on their hands. Well, everybody in jail is innocent. Right. Mr. And Clark. so they just flood the system with it. Yeah. It's a big, big problem uh, in the federal system. Right. Federal judges trying to figure out how to handle it. Having said that, um, if DNA was available to be tested, prosecutors, and a lot of them have, but, but we've got publicity of those ones. Prosecutors, in my view, should have said, Absolutely. We're Go ahead. Test it. Right. Do it. Do it. Because we don't want innocent people in jail, and if DNA proves that they're innocent, then we don't want them there. But if it proves that they are innocent, then if the legis- exactly if the legislature would, right. would restrict their involvement to providing the funding adequate funding. vehicle for right. them to do it, um, and and encourage, however, I right. just don't want them to be the one that is doing it. Over the years, you know, related to the death penalty, but even in some instances not related to death penalty, one of the things you will hear from time to time is. The prosecutorial system in this state is racist. That's, if you look at who gets convicted, if you look at which cases go to trial, if you look at the outcome, it's racist. What do you think about that? I think when I started out as a prosecutor, it was a a real problem and a real issue. Right. In terms of who prosecutors eliminated from the jury. And they, they, it was not unknown. I mean, everybody realized that most prosecutors at that time, felt that members of minorities 
were going to be more sympathetic with the defendant uh, than they would be with the government. And that was what was driving it. Um, and so they would just make carte blanche decisions. Um, As a prosecutor, did you ever engage in conduct in this respect that you'd like to have back? <laughs> no. In fact, uh, I, I'll never forget, I had a jury, I'd been a prosecutor about three or four years, so it was in the 70s, and there were six blacks, three Hispanics, one India Indian, and two Anglos on the jury. And the, and the thing around the courthouse when they saw him was, who the hell's jury is that? Well, that's Rusty Harden. Well, what is he doing? <laughs> well, he, he said he liked them. <laughs> <laughs> so he left them on the jury. No, uh, and and it's changed dramatically. And ultimately, prosecutors became edgy. You know, look, Tom Hawkins and I went to law school together, chairman of the Texas Workforce. It, it doesn't have to be your political ideology. I don't think there's any secret anybody knows Tom that he's been a very outspoken conservative. Staunch conservative, right? Very conservative, very conservative for a long time. <laughs> But I, he think, started, I, th I think he thinks you're <laughs> But he started out in law school taking appointed criminal cases. And I was a third-year law. He was one year ahead. I was a third-year law student, and I would go down and help him sometimes. And since he was licensed, he could supervise me. We handled several appointed cases and yep. criminal cases together. I think that, that what, happen, what happens here a lot of times with prosecutors is they have, they're just like anybody else evolving about their attitudes. And they ultimately, I think, the overwhelming majority of them have come to realize that the majority of victims are, are minorities. And so why in the world would you be excluding whatever your practical concerns are, people that come from the very group that are the biggest right. numbers of victims? Right. But I, I think it's, a, it's been an evolving thing, and I think it's, it's not very frequent now. But since human beings run the system, it's got to still happen sometimes. Yeah. It never should, but I think, I think the system has largely taken care of that. Did you learn something from being a prosecutor that made you a better defense attorney? Or some things? Yeah, uh, I think... I, I think... Well, first of all, I loved, I loved being a prosecutor. And I, I love what I'm doing now just as much. About 90% of my practice now is civil trial work. Uh, it's just that the public hears about criminal cases more than they do civil cases. But I've, I've felt very strongly for victims when I was a prosecutor and, and was early on in, in the battered women's movement and so with prosecutors. Uh, when I ended up representing somebody charged with it, I lost a lot of those friends. But uh, I, I was always very much involved in that. And I think what I, what I learned was is you, you've got to always understand what's coming from the victim's standpoint because until they reach this age of more supremacy within the system than the defendant, for such a long time, victims were, they were the minority in the criminal justice system. They, were, they weren't listened to. They had no rights. They had no right to talk uh, in court. They had no right to present their position. Prosecutors routinely, a lot of times, would plead cases without even contacting them. Uh, and so that's been an evolution and an improvement in the system. But uh, I've never viewed the opposing side on either one as a co-defendant. You know, I mean, it is... Uh, what prosecution allowed me to do was to know you can run that system fairly 
and still success and be successful. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, on, the, on the defense side, the big advantage has been is the awareness that a lot of good people screw up. Sometimes they screw up and didn't commit a crime. Sometimes they didn't do it. And I think that uh, the big thing that, that's helped me is to avoid this rush of judgment we have now. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a public official now or you're a public personality or anybody with a public reputation, the allegation is almost automatically assumed to be true. Right, and it's reported by my colleagues in the press. They convict you on A1 and they acquit you on C23. They do. Say, right? well, that, that's right, but even, even more important than that is, is we've reached this compulsion to require confession. All of a sudden, the only remedy, if you are accused publicly of a crime with a public reputation, if you don't step out front and admit you did it, then you're, you're done for. Everybody turns and assumes you did it. And even if you did do it, you can be done for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Roger Clemens was, and, and I, for four years... Perfect I Perfect transition. Well, <laughs> for, for four years, it's really kind of funny when some nice things were said later. Um, for four years, I was the worst lawyer in America in a lot of circles. For letting, the theory was, letting uh, Roger Clemens testify before Congress. Yeah. And what nobody ever understood is, Roger Clemens testified for, he didn't want to. We tried to talk him out of it. We went up there and begged the staff not to have the hearing, not to call him. I, I took the position, I've only seen one good witness before Congress, and he was in a Marine uniform and told him to stick it where the sun didn't shine, and he had immunity. So he, Oliver North had the best thing. He could, he could rant and do whatever he wanted. Uh, but didn't no, work out so well for him, though, in the end. Well, it? yeah, it, but he didn't get convicted. <laughs> That's true. Because he got his case reversed because he had immunity. That's right. Anyway, having said that, Congress didn't give us any choice. So Roger Clemens testified because he was not willing to take the fifth because that was his only two choices. Yeah. If, he take the fifth, if he took the fifth, he would have no legal jeopardy for the rest of his life. He was told that. Statute of limitations had run. Hey, it, it was only possession. They weren't prosecuting people for possession allegation. And uh, he'd walk free. His position was, but everybody will always think I did it. Yes, they will. But you'll also be free. You won't have to pay all this money for lawyers. Right. You won't have to go through the danger of going to the penitentiary. And, now, and I'll give you one quick thing. I want everybody here to figure out what you would do if you were the lawyer under the following circumstances. And this is important to look at from the criminal justice standpoint, the system. It doesn't, this doesn't just affect people like Roger Clemens. It's everybody that's charged with a crime. The night before the Mitchell report, which is the one that said he did it, came out, I tell him in my office, here's, what, here's what's going to happen. If you publicly walk out through either me or you and deny that you use steroids or HGH, here's what's going to happen. You are going to get an invitation from Congressman Waxman to come testify before Congress because the Mitchell report is his baby. He worked it out with Bud Seeley. They're all vested in it. And if you deny as the most prominent person in it, they're going to take that as a challenge, and they're going to have you come testify. Your lawyers will first say to you when you get a voluntary deal, look, just tell no. But that won't do you any good because in 2005 when they had the hearings, they subpoenaed everybody, and they'll subpoena you. So then you'll get a subpoena, and you'll have two choices. You can take the fifth, or you can testify. If you take the fifth, you'll have no legal jeopardy from now on. If you testify and deny under oath that you took these things, that Congress has got a vested interest in proving you did, 
then you'll probably refer to the Department of Justice for perjury. You will probably be indicted because the prosecutor won't have enough courage not to go forward on the congressional referral. And if you're convicted, the sentencing guidelines call for 22 months. So Roger Clemens knew all of that before he knew ever testified. Knew the risk. Knew the risk. And the interesting thing is nobody ever looked at that as possibly evidence that he wasn't guilty. They simply said, he's arrogant. We've seen him on the field. He's just trying to game the system. And what would you tell a person facing those consequences if they didn't do it? And that was the issue. He, and people faced it in the criminal justice system every day. If you didn't do it, what, do you, what should you do? Should you fight it? Should you give in to the lesser evil? Should you spare yourself all of that? Those are the kind of decisions that are made every day in the criminal justice system. What was different about Roger is Roger had the money to fight it. The jury told me later that uh, the reason they didn't talk to the media was because they decided back in the jury room and every vote they took on every count was always unanimously not guilty. They didn't just find him not guilty. They didn't believe he did it. In other words, it wasn't just that the government didn't meet their burden of proof. They reached a decision that he didn't do it. But they weren't going to talk to the media because they said, you know, there were IRS agents in this thing, there were FBI agents, and if they would go after somebody like Roger Clemens with his money and his public position... Who wouldn't they go after? Who wouldn't they go after? We're in the media criticizing. So uh, they had very, very strong feelings about the role of government in it. Yeah. And, uh, but they didn't want to say it publicly. So are we rusty to take away from the Clemens case that he was innocent or that the government didn't meet its burden? That he was innocent. Um, and, of course... And you believed him to be innocent. Always. Yeah. Always. Uh, you know, the, the interesting thing, the advantage a defense lawyer has over a prosecutor is the defense lawyer is able to talk and visit and be with the defendant. The prosecutor never gets a chance to talk to the person. They never get a chance to, to really see how they react under cross. Um, we, probably, we probably would shedded Roger Clemens 50 hours saying, look, if you did it, just tell us. It's no problem. We're not going to be judgmental about it. If that's, we'll know what to do yep. and what to do differently. And Roger Clemens uh, never, ever varied. And so we believed him. Um, and more importantly, I think at the end of the trial, the jury believed, because though he didn't testify at trial, he had testified in those hearings. People knew. Uh, do you ever take a client who is guilty? Absolutely. Yeah. You want to tell us which ones? <laughs> you know what? I've never had one found not guilty that I believe was guilty. Right. What, but, you know, I took a lot of kidding when I went into private practice originally because I've been such a vocal prosecutor and true believer in it, the people who are kidding me saying, well, he's, he says he only represents the innocent. I've never said that. A lawyer that represented only the innocent has a very small practice. Yeah. It's not good for business. It's not good for business. Right. But there are certain types of cases that, that I'm not interested in doing. But those cases that we believe the person did it and, and the government has the evidence and everything, we try to work something out. Yeah. Um, so. I mentioned that you tried successfully 14 death penalty cases as a prosecutor. Is your opinion about the death penalty different now, having seen the sausage while it's being made? 
No. As a defense attorney, do you think differently than you did back then? No, because I never was a proponent of the death penalty. I just wasn't opposed. Are you personally, I mean, I asked you to decline no. to answer. Are you personally opposed to death penalty? No. You are for I was never a proponent. My position is that is a societal decision. It's an you're, you're neutral personally on it. Yes. Right? Yeah. Okay. And I, you know, I, I always refuse to speak at death penalty conferences in favor of it. I always refuse to be on a panel uh, explaining why we should have it. I've always felt that the death penalty is an extreme punishment. That if they did, if society and the legislature did away with it tomorrow, I wouldn't go into mourning at all. I wouldn't even be upset about it, and uh, I would be fine with that. But I do believe that society has the right. Uh, to decide that's a punishment if, if they're appropriate safeguards. The problem with it, because when we take off in a war, you know, we declared war on crime, and maybe that has a problem in itself, but when we declared war on crime, we're really no different, in my view, than when those planes take off. They know there's the danger of somebody that is not full of blame is going to be, die or get hurt. And so the challenge in the death penalty system, if you're going to have it, is to try to ensure that it is so incredibly fair that you're not wrongly doing it. Do you think it's fair? Sometimes. Sometimes not. I think that... But again, let me go back to what I said about innocence. Is one innocent person executed too many, or are you okay with the acceptable margin of error? I'm not okay with it. I'm not sure that, that the choices you give me are the only, only choices. Choice. So what would be a choice I didn't give you? That it's never acceptable... For an innocent person to be convicted, certainly not uh, receive the death penalty. But that doesn't mean that that should throw out the whole system. I think, for instance, I think our sentences are too long, period. I don't believe in life without parole. I believe that... If you don't believe in life without no. parole. For a lot of people, life, life without parole is the thing that allows you not to have a death penalty. Yes, but it gives you an easy out in the extreme way instead of making you face the hardcore decision. Okay. Because then the tendency is is to put somebody away for life and you say, I didn't, I didn't get them executed right. or anything. Get yourself off the hook. I get, take you off the hook. And more importantly, once society, in my view, and by the way, all of this is my view. I don't mean to say that so positively or firmly. Mm -hmm. um, once you make this decision in a death penalty type case, not to impose the death penalty, and that person ought to have hope the rest of their life just like anybody else. I think warehousing people for all of their natural life with no hope is a horrible, horrible thing for us to do. Right. Is it worse Is it worse or as bad as killing them? In many ways, I think it is. I, I just think that, that uh, our prison system should have people, everybody there realize that if they change their life, um, they still got some hope. I don't believe in keeping people locked up with no hope. Okay. Uh, I think we're at the time now where we should take questions from the audience. We have a little bit of time to do that. And anybody who wants to ask one, there's a microphone in the center. Be informal about it. But come up and ask. Gardner. Howdy, howdy. Uh, in, I was thinking about what you were saying a moment ago about the uh, Clemens matter. And I didn't follow as closely as many people. But Andy Pettit testified something, it seems to me, that, that was very direct about what he had Clemens had told him. Yeah, that, and that, that, how, it how wasn't that, different. How does all that Pettit stuff fit in? And then second, uh, uh, if you have a chance, follow up on what you wanted to bookmark on the uh, pretrial detention periods. Right, yes, I do want to come back to that. Thank you, Gardner. So let's, let me ask you about Andy Pettit. We're getting, this is literal inside baseball. Literal inside baseball. Uh, actually, uh, the Andy Pettit 
perception in the public is really the, Evan's profession is to blame uh, because they never looked at what happened about the facts no matter how much we tried to say. So everybody's perception was Andy Pettit was certain Roger Clemens had told him he'd used HGH. So when he then testifies later at trial, there's only a 50-50 chance that he remembered correctly. Everybody thought that was a change. In fact, what happened was the week before the hearings, their process allowed for depositions. And they took the deposition of Roger, Andy, and McNamee, the man who was the accuser. And in that deposition, Andy testified under oath at first until they came back and got him to say, well, no, I think, I think he said it. He testified that in 1999, he thought when he and Roger were working out with some other people, Roger told him he'd used HGH. Then in 2005, when they had the big celebrated Baseball One hearings, uh, he gets all concerned because he had never told Roger, he said, but he'd used H he and he'd used HGH twice, 2002, 2004. And he was deathly afraid the media, Andy is a very honest guy, and he was afraid the media was going to come ask him, and he didn't know what to do. So he goes to his mentor, older brother, they're exactly 10 years apart, and says, Roger, what are you going to say if they come and ask you about this stuff? And Roger said, I'm going to tell them the truth. I never used any of that crap. I thought you told me a few years ago that you tried HGH. No, I told you Debbie had tried it. And he said, Roger was so... Debbie is Mrs. Clemens. Mrs. Clemens, thank you. He said, Roger was so persuasive and insistent and believable that he, Andy, had decided that he had misunderstood. Later, when Waxman's staff comes back in the same deposition, like every lawyer knows, the other guys just him come back and say, well, no, now that you think about it, do you believe he did it now? No, I believe I heard him right. When he testified, he explained that he didn't know whether he'd heard him right or not. And everybody, nobody went back to the deposition. Andy's testimony at trial was no different than he had testified under oath the week before the hearings. So he just, he never was sure. And we always knew that Andy wasn't sure. It was a misperception, perhaps created by the way it was reported. Yes. Yeah. Now what about this pretrial detention issue? Gardner brings up a good one I meant to ask about again. Thank you. Judges have started imposing more, in Harris County, now I can't speak for around the state, but in Harris County, for instance, we've gone to a presumption of innocence to a presumption of guilt to such a degree that, that uh, people are placed in, in jail for longer than they should be there waiting trial. And all of these conditions of probation that are, 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 that are on them, pretrial detention positions, that uh, they might as well have been convicted. In fact, the average pretrial detention conditions in Harris County are stricter than many of the conditions they're going to get later if they are found guilty and get probation. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've done away with this idea that bail was supposed to be a way to ensure the accused would show up for trial. Now it's been now it's been tacked on as a, an additional punishment. Just lock them up before before we even have a trial. Yeah, yeah. ma'am. You've mentioned the role of the media several times in your your comments. When you take a case, do you have an overall media strategy? Um, can you talk a little bit about the role of the media um, as you tr go about the business of trying your cases? Yeah, I, the, the media obviously is critically important. The interesting thing, even though I, I've kidded Evan here a couple of times, I'm probably the foremost proponent of the media of anybody you'll find in the system, primarily because in 37 years I've never been misquoted. Not one time. You may be the only man in America who yeah. can say that. I've been quoted saying things I wished I didn't say, but I said them. <laughs> I did say them. So I've, I've had sort of a love affair with the media 
all along. The Roger Clemens case was the first one I'd ever gotten really pounded on because that was the first time I'd dealt with two things, and that is tabloid newspapers, which were New York Daily News and, the, and New York Post. Post. We don't have those. Uh, and they had an agenda, and they don't really care what the truth is. Um, and they don't care about doing both sides. And then that combined with the sports media, which in all deference are not real reporters and media people. They are entertainers. And so the case... You should politifact that, actually. <laughs> I'm sorry. They, they are entertainers. And so uh, I had them tell me when I said, well, I think if you go check so-and-so, that you're going to find out that's not true. I don't care about that. All I care is whether somebody said it. And that was it. There was no the old days of two sources and all of that. So I learned through that case there are some cases that I have no, I'll have no media strategy with. That is, I'll just have to stay quiet because whatever I say that may get reported correctly with the mainstream is going to get messed up with the non-mainstream. And that's perfectly true of bloggers and everything. I, you know, we have no control over that. We, obviously, we don't know what we're going to say. I've never received hate mail like I did in the Clemens case. I, I learned one thing. Baseball fans are not well people. <laughs> I mean, because... Good, good day, sir. <laughs> I'm outraged at the suggestion of that. Uh, but, but the fact is, on the Morton stuff, you will talk to the press to the degree that the circum the, 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 what is circumscribed. Yeah, what, you obviously what, have some problems getting too candid, as you demonstrated today. But. Here's, here's what I think that, that lawyers ought to do. I think it's, it, what's wrong for lawyers is to talk about what the evidence is going to be. Or to give a press conference in and characterize what they believe of it after it's happened. But mixed with that, responding to the media for legitimate questions and legitimate things in ways that don't poison potentially a jury panel. That's sort of the guideline. Uh, is the lawyer out there saying things that's trying to persuade the impending jury panel? All the things, remember, that we did all this publicity that was so unsuccessful with Clemens was he wasn't charged with anything. There was no jury involved. We were talking about Congress, which, you know, is, is a world unto itself. So uh, I think, my, I, you know, I've always said three things about dealing with the media. You always return their phone calls. You always tell them the truth. And when you can't talk to them, tell them why you can't. You know, I, look, let me tell you off the record. I can't talk about this for X, Y, Z reason. Well, that's, that's got to be with reporters you trust. When you move into the broader scale where there is no, you know, you're dealing with people you don't even know, uh, it's a much harder thing to do. So... Sometimes I have a strategy, sometimes I don't. But um, I wouldn't say, I, I thought I was a disaster in the Clemens case. Sir. Thank you. Hello, my name is Amin Habibnia, and I was hoping you could share your insights on immunity for prosecutors um, and, and your history with that and just your general thoughts on immunity for prosecutors. And secondly, if you've ever tried to take a swing at a rocket fastball. <laughs> at, a, at a basketball? Okay. you ever take a swing at one of Clemens's pitches? Oh, no, no, I didn't. You know, I, I wouldn't dare. Uh, but uh, Even at 50, he's still got some juice. Well, he's still ball, 88 right? miles an hour, right. 89. So, uh, no, I Frankly, he'd still be the best pitcher on the Astros today, wouldn't he? <laughs> he would. He would. He would. <laughs> if they're smart. Uh, I think you have to have immunity. As much as people want the punishment, I think the punishment of prosecutors that stray uh, needs to be through the normal like it is for any other attorney through the normal grievance procedures or um, if they committed a crime, you charge them with a crime. 
But if they don't have immunity from civil liability, it'd be impossible for them to do their job because they are prosecuting people and they're always involved in a case where one side or the other is upset. And uh, I just don't think they can function if they don't have immunity. Thank you. Ms. Grant. My name is Kathy Grant, and um, I just am curious if you have thoughts about the juvenile uh, certification process to be tried as an adult, and just kind of what you think about that. You know, I never practiced. Yeah, I never practiced juvenile law, and I don't. I don't profess to be an expert. We represented some juveniles, but never those that government. Maybe one time, where the state was seeking to certify. I'm very, very bothered by long sentences or punishment for any juvenile. Um, I, I've never believed in it because, look, every one of us that, that have children know that something can happen that doesn't mean the system ought to write them off the rest of their lives. So certification has certain limits. I, I think very rarely, very, very rarely should a juvenile be put into the adult system. Sir? Yes, uh, okay, so... Um Putting aside Alexander Hamilton's uh, Federalist Paper 84, the prohibition against titles of nobility, we'll say that prosecutors have absolute immunity for what they do in the name of the state. What immunity about, from civil lawsuits? From civil law. They're lawsuits. not immune from the criminal law. They're not immune from sanctions from their professional, but an immunity from civil lawsuits, yes. Uh, but everyone within, no one in, in the system wants to prosecute them because of political considerations. So how can a citizen, why could a citizen not prosecute them uh, when the system, the people in the system refuse to do their job? And then I also have a question about, as you're a student of history, what, what about the an entity in which they're employed? Now the entity in which they're employed, should they be able to claim that you know, like the king, they have sovereign immunity, and therefore there's no justice for the victims of crimes committed by prosecutors and the entity that they work for? What about that? Well, I think you, you don't have, the city doesn't have, and the counties don't have immunity from misconduct by police officers if, if the plaintiff can meet the burden. Uh, to show that the body was aware or through either their failure in training or so. Uh, they allowed this to happen. I think similarly, um, the county, which is usually who employs the prosecutor, potentially can be held liable, though the individual prosecutor might not be. But the county could be if uh, they, the institution, are aware of what the prosecutor is doing or should have been to the standard the law requires. So I think there, there are ways there. It's not obviously a perfect system. Um, but when you balance it out, uh, I don't know that getting the prosecutor's money, which is what they're immune from, just you being able to sue them to get money. That's the only thing that immunity does. And uh, I, I don't know that, that it, you maybe not have a baby in a bathwater situation if you try to change that. But you can still go after the county. There's still the election process. Harris County poured out uh, their elected DA for different reasons four years four years ago. Uh, and, and he was thrown out by his own party. So the employing entity of the prosecutor is the state. Even though they work in the county, they are acting in the name of the state. They are. They are. Last question. We heard the applause next door. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to choose to believe they ended a minute early. So um, 
during the uh, Chad Holly beating trial, some of the officers, uh, the first officer who went on trial, the whole issue of jury makeup uh, became a big deal. There were no African Americans on the jury. Um, Rusty, I wanted to know how you feel about um, whether it is necessary for jur juries uh, to reflect the racial makeup of, in this instance, Harris County or a particular county where a trial is held. And have you ever felt it was necessary to try to strike African-American uh, potential I, jurors? We danced around uh, this a little bit earlier. The question I've never felt it, it was appropriate to strike somebody because they were African-Americans. I, I think, as I mentioned, I've always had uh, significant numbers of minorities of each kind on my jury. I do think that prosecutors and prosecuting um, a case like the Holly case um, should have done everything they could to have some minorities on there. And I, and I don't know whether in that particular jury, I don't know the facts, Mary, but whether or not there were significant numbers or enough numbers of African Americans sitting out there uh, that a prosecutor couldn't. I think when you have that kind of galvanizing trial for the community, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, it was a very uh, uh, media-intense uh, arrest and beating of a, of a young man yep. from a burglary. Um, I, I think the prosecutor has to remember that he needs the community to be comfortable that the state was doing the right thing. In that particular case, my guess is going to be the defense struck all the minorities. Historically, I, I would be very surprised if the state in that prosecution was the one striking them. I'm going to guess the defense was. But do we know? I mean, uh, yeah, I think what happens is, look, the, the, neither side is supposed to be doing it. And the U.S. Supreme Court has said neither side is supposed to be doing it. Prosecutors have a particular responsibility. They have a responsibility to see that justice is done and to represent the community. A defense lawyer is representing that one single person. And um, uh, so, you know, he wants, he wants to. I, I would have thought that, the more I'm thinking about it, I think I'm wrong now. Um, you know, in those, that, that dynamics, you had, you had a, a, a black defendant. No, you had, a, you had a white police officer. So you're right, Mary. It would have been, it would have been uh, the police officer defendant. So lawyers would be the one striking blacks, striking. most likely. He would, have, he would have been the one striking him in that case. Yeah. Rusty, this has been great. What a treat to get to sit across from you and listen to you talk about this stuff. Thank you for being here. Fine, George. Appreciate it. Thank you all very much. Rusty Harden. It's really nice of you to come in and join us.